Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast, over and out. First question, why am I not naked? That is a very, very good question. Now that being naked is very righteous and quite normal thing to do uh, for professors trying to make a point that they believe in. I don't know why I'm not naked. Well, actually I do because as soon as I saw that lecture, by the way, folks, if you don't know what we're talking about, there was recently a Cambridge lecturer who gave a, I don't even know if you could call it a lecture because it was more like a story, but she is, you know, a passionate remainer in the Brexit debate. She's very troubled by the prospect of Brexit and she gave a public lecture or performance, let's say. Yeah, performance is the right word to to show the world why Brexit is a really bad idea. Um, and she was butt ass naked. <laughs> I honestly think it's fantastic. I, I think it's so great. Um, I don't really care that much about Brexit one way or the other because I'm from America and I'm only a visitor in this country. And I think whatever the British people want to do is fine with me. But uh, man, it was funny. And uh, okay, right. So let's, let's break it down a little bit. She, her, her slogan that I think was written on her chest or body somewhere was something to the effect that uh, Brexit leaves the United Kingdom naked. So that was kind of the gist of her performance. That was the symbolic significance. And, you know, I think all the power to her, if, if that's how she feels, if she thinks that Brexit is a, is a terrible catastrophe on the, on the immediate horizon, that's going to do great harm to her country, then good for her, I say. I, I personally, you know, I, I, I find it a little, um, I have a hard time personally understanding why anyone would be so concerned about this, like, particular technocratic political process personally i think whether your rulers are the eu or the uk um i'm not saying it's not significant or it doesn't matter or it's not worth paying attention to or not worth you know um expressing your your viewpoints on but to me it's sort of like i just don't get my uh i just don't get my panties in a knot about that personally or I certainly don't get so upset that I would uh, take my panties off <laughs> for for this issue. But hey, you know, different 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 issues are uh, they have different stakes and different emotional valences for different people. And if this is something that she believes in very strongly, then all the power to her. <laughs> I just think it's so funny. Um, and yeah, I, I do. I immediately thought the first thing I thought when I watched that is I should totally do something naked. Why would I not? Um, I've actually always had a passion for doing things naked. Like a passion is maybe too uh, significant of a word, but I've always had a tendency to get naked. Like when I was younger, I was like at pool parties and stuff like that. I was always like, yeah, the guy uh, skinny dipping and shit. It's just fun. Right. Uh, 
and when I saw her, I was like, oh, this is like social license to totally do this. I mean, there, there's no, and no one could, could say anything to me if I were to do a lecture naked or make some kind of video naked. I could write like whatever kind of political message I want on me. That, I, that was definitely the immediate thought that entered my mind. And actually, I, I started getting really excited. I was like, I, I can, this is the, the greatest social permission to do this as a lecturer. You know, this shows that this is an honorable, uh, righteous thing that is uh, lauded and, and impressive for an academic to do. So I immediately thought to do it. And I mean, who knows what the future holds, but uh, my, the reason I didn't do it like today, like right when I got that idea, because usually when I get crazy ideas, I do them right when I get them or else it's not going to happen. So the reason I didn't do it, but who knows what, what will happen. The reason I didn't do it is because here's the thing. Nobody wants to see a man naked. <laughs> it's just not, uh, you know, I'm not that old yet. And I'm in shape and I'm fit. So, you know, I, I think uh, I'm relatively good looking naked. However, I'm still a 32 year old man and just nobody wants to see even a, you know, fairly good looking and svelte 32 uh, year old man naked. Of course, there's a small number of people who maybe do. But on the whole, when you see a man naked on the Internet, it's just it's just horrifying. Uh, whereas like a woman, even though she was older, and, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to comment at all uh, on 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 that dimension of things. Uh, but even though she was older, you know, when you see a naked woman on a stage, it's just not that crazy. Actually, it's not it's not even that shocking. I mean, you open up Instagram and you see it all over the place. I mean, if you look at Tumblr or Instagram, it's naked women all over the place. It's actually quite normal. I feel like the average person, even if you have no interest in porn or don't sign up for any type of, you know, sexual types of things, um, just randomly, you will, uh, you know, encounter a more or less naked woman or close to naked woman on some platform, like at least what once a week, is that fair to say? Um, I mean, I don't maybe my, maybe my feeds are different than yours for uh, peculiar or perverse reasons. I don't know. But uh, I think, you know, I don't, I don't like I definitely look at such things and my interest in such things is definitely lower that way lower than average in our society. So if I'm getting those things like fairly often, um, yeah, I would think most people are actually quite desensitized to the appearance of, uh, quite nearly naked women. Uh, so yeah, like seeing this woman, like, yeah, she's a lecturer and yeah, she's a little bit older and she's on a well-lit stage. You don't really see that every day. So when I saw that, like, okay, yeah, I'm definitely like, Oh, what's going on here. That's a little out of the ordinary. But I didn't have a deep kind of like visceral shock of like, oh, my gosh, this is outrageous because I'm, I'm like quite used to seeing naked women appear on on, you know, different feeds. What's interesting is that academia is now entering kind of like trash tier, uh, like media spectacle. Uh, I think that's I think that's hilarious and awesome, to be, to be frank. Like, I wonder if in, fast forward in 10 years, Neo-China arrives in the future and the average academic is a uh, like young woman who gets like half of her academic salary from thirst trapping on Instagram or something like this. This is basically like uh, the avant-garde uh, that's heading towards that. I think um, it start. it all starts with a, you know, 50 year old, uh, you know, senior lecturer or uh, what is it? A uh, senior fellow, a fellow at Cambridge. It all starts with a modest, you know, 60 year old fellow at Cambridge getting naked on a stage, but you wait and see what, uh, you wait and see what, how should I put this? 
what bulwark was just was just brought down. You wait and see what uh, deluge of sexualized academic, especially academic women, is going to be coming out in the next couple of years. You mark you mark my words. This will be one of my predictions. I don't make a lot of predictions because I think generally predicting the future is a fool's errand. But uh, I definitely think that there is a long term dynamic and long term nowadays. You know, means like a couple decades. But uh, I definitely think there's a a more or less uh, long-term dynamic in which the prestige institutions and fields are basically due to just ineluctable, unavoidable market pressures from the you know surrounding uh, social sectors or whatever. The the prestige fields that once upon a time were kind of you know prided themselves on their on their you know anti-vulgarity are basically uh, being torn asunder by just ineluctable competitive necessities to make themselves increasingly vulgar. You know, it's just like cursing in the classroom, like lecturers, you know, I I can remember when I first started teaching as a PhD student, it was like still pretty edgy. You know, I was like the, I was like the edgy young lecturer to like sometimes say a curse word. Uh, Nowadays it's like so normal, like academic lectures just drop little curse words here and there um, all the time. Cause it's like, everyone wants to be edgy everyone. And that's normal now. And uh, yeah. So I do think that there are these, deep, deep pressures or tendencies that are mostly just enforced by market realities of, you know, living in a contemporary hyper digital hyper capitalist kind of society that uh, is basically forcing prestige anti-vulgar traditions to start trafficking in, 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 in vulgarity more and more. So, yeah, I mean, I think like if, if, my other intuitions are right that academia is kind of going to be increasingly chopped up into well, what is basically the gig economy. I mean, a lot of the stuff I'm experimenting with is kind of more or less in that, you know, that's, that's one way to describe it and not a terrible way to describe it. Uh, you get the idea when, when I say the word gig economy, you know, just breaking things up into their component parts and selling them directly to people on kind of large open marketplaces, basically. Uh, if my intuition is right, that academia is increasingly kind of chopped up into these different gig economy types of direct disintermediated exchanges, uh, then it would follow that the, the, the kind of sexual uh, marketing component that is always available in any kind of uh, domain or market would also kind of find its own little specialization. And I mean, you could, you could totally imagine, for instance, if there's an academic, like let's say my age, who is, uh, let's say every way comparable to me in my terms of my research output and my success in academia or whatever, my, my level in academia or whatever, but is a woman and is an, an, and is an attractive woman. Like if I was an attractive woman and I wanted to make this kind of transition out of academia that I'm currently doing, but, but wanting to maintain a kind of serious intellectual life and maintain a long-term research agenda and do intellectual work as, as the bulk of my work on a daily basis, but I have to kind of come up with different ways to make myself valuable and make an income. Hell yeah. I would do basically different types of thirst trapping and uh, more or less kind of like soft sex work, like hundred percent. I think I would to be, to be totally frank. Um, I could still do that personally. Um, but it's a little harder cause I'm not actually gay. And obviously if you want to do that as a man, you have to do it. it you have to do it uh, for, for gay, you know, like gay for pay or whatever. Um, so yeah, that like, since I'm not gay, I think that would take an, an extra kind of emotional toll on me that I'm not, I'm not really there for. Also just the stigma is greater. Like if I were to do that, um, 
then like that would really be like my family and friends, like my family, like my mom and dad and, you know, my mother-in-law and stuff like that, who watches these live streams, by the way, <laughs> hi mom. <laughs> like if I were to do gay for pay to sustain my intellectual life, that would be seriously looked down upon. Um, you know, even people who accept me and like me and, you know, love me, you know, they would really feel like, Ugh, that's like, damn, Justin is like really low. Damn. Uh, whereas like, if you're a woman and you do that, it's like, you know, uh, it's still, there's still some stigma for sure. I'm not denying that, but people immediately kind of get it. Or rather what I should say is there are now very soft, normalized ways of doing it that don't strike people as even scandalous, really. Um, in some sense, like the whole influencer economy and all of that is, is like the really, really low level of more or less like whoring yourself out, like being a model in some sense is, is kind of whoring yourself out. And that there's always been a tradition for that. That's always kind of accepted and normalized and not, and in fact admired. Right. So, um, yeah, if I was a woman academic and I was hot, I would totally, I would totally be doing that. Um, and I'm surprised you don't see more of it, but I think you will, especially when people like this Cambridge lecture, you know, when people with a lot of cultural capital at an esteemed institution start breaking down the vulgarity barriers for, you know, their own political points or their own cultural capital or whatever. And I don't even mean that in a cynical or demeaning way. Like, yeah, this woman is obviously trying to make a point. She's trying to produce ripples in the culture. She's, she's a cultural entrepreneur in some sense, and she's using her, her body and her sexuality to do that in some sense and uh, <clears throat> all the power to her. But uh, yeah, I think that's just going to have the effect of making the, making the wall between academia and sex work probably um, even thinner and, and, and shorter and more permeable. So yeah, I would expect to see more of that kind of thing in, in many domains, not just in academia. Huh, that was a fun little rant. Uh, Brenton says that I am basically describing Ayala. Uh, I do not know Ayala, but I have seen her around the internet and she seems cool. I've actually, actually I have, I do remember looking at her blog she seems like really smart and legit and has written really interesting stuff. And I guess what Brenton is getting at is uh, she's also quite attractive, I, I guess you could say, and, you know, obviously in a, you know, she, she looks quite hot, I guess. Um, and I guess her, I guess the idea is that, well, any, any woman who's attractive, like that is just part of the, the, the value proposition that, 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 they are offering to the world. And this is true, right? For men also. I mean, I'm, this is not a very profound thing. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with it necessarily. I think, yeah, I mean, I guess I do have like complicated uh, attitudes towards it because I am somewhat of a, um, I am somewhat socially illiberal when it comes to uh, overly unconstrained, like sexual mores. I, I do think that that's been quite a problem for our society, but that's, that's neither here nor there. Like in the world that we live in. Um, yeah. I mean, you leverage your looks to do whatever you're doing. Then there's, it's almost inescapable. Um, yeah. So all the power to her. Uh, she's probably out uh, ahead of something that you're going to see more and more of. And I think it's good. You know, it's, it's, if something is happening in the culture, whether you like it or not, um, like, Re resistance is futile. I think never resist things, never object says to lose, never object. That doesn't necessarily mean you should throw yourself like headlong into any trend uncritically and unethically. Like, no, not at all. This doesn't like remove the, the necessity of, of discipline and, and self-imposed ethics and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's getting harder and harder to survive, especially 
you know, doing things like blogging and being a kind of like open public intellectual. And if you have to kind of make that financially workable by leveraging all different types of other assets <laughs> that you have, hell yeah, do what you got to do, I think. Um, and if you're blessed with good looks, especially if you're a woman, yeah, why not own it? Do it all at once. So uh, yeah, do we have any other questions? Um, any other comments? What long form articles do I have planned? That's a good question. I got a bunch of shit planned. I have literally like a spreadsheets and spreadsheets of titles. Um, one thing that I want to do, well, I mean, I could just, I'll, I'll just go randomly really. I mean, I'm mostly thinking now about books and my, my in, immediate interest and goal is to take the, all of the content that I have sitting on my hard drive that's valuable and turn it into some type of product or service that people can actually use like immediately. And, and, and that's valuable. So the big, the big candidate on that list that I'm starting to focus on now is all of my code for data analysis stuff, specifically our code for political science. So I have like, I've had this problem over the past several years that, um, you know, I've published good academic research articles, but I'm like addicted to just exploratory data analyses. Like I'm, I'm absolutely addicted to, just digging into some sort of big public data set with really cool information and just taking a quick look at the relationship between a few variables. Like, Oh, you know, I'll get into my, I'll see a data set and I'll get into my head. Like, Oh, I wonder if the relationship between leftism and abortion support is changing since 1976. You know, like I, I get these sorts of like little, just strong curiosities and I'm pretty good with this stuff. So I can, I can get that data on my computer and whip up the code to make some graphs uh, to look at, you know, what is the relationship between leftism and abortion attitudes um, like over the past few decades? I can I can like make that graph in a few different ways, like pretty quickly because I've done that stuff a lot and, and I'm pretty skilled with that stuff. So uh, I have. But but what I've often done over the past like five years as an academic, you never have enough fucking time to if you get an idea like that, you might spend two hours. Right. Or um, if you get like really into it, you get carried away. You might spend two hours on it and you have all these analyses on like some topic of interest. Uh, but to to turn that into a published research article takes a very, very long time, like months, really. Um, and it's, it requires all these other steps, right? Even just to turn it into a blog post, that might only take like, four, let's say, to do it right, make everything look nice and write it up well. Let's say that takes four hours. I'm just ballparking. I have no no idea. But let's just say it takes four hours. Well, that's a long fucking time that you can't really justify when you're doing like a serious career like academia. And you have to, you have to publish. You have to do, there's certain things you have to prioritize. You can't just do like long blog posts you can get away with you know um you can get away with stealing like two hours at the end of your day on a random you know one day of the week to do some exploratory analysis and you get a little you get a lot of insight and you get a lot of value but then to, to do something with it even get it to the blog that's like prohibitively time consuming uh to do it on a regular basis anyway obviously i've done it a few times um but it's it's prohibitively difficult to, to do that and get it out there so over the past five years i've I've done all of these exploratory analyses. I have all of this code and all these graphs and different types of, you know, half-baked looked, looks at things. And uh, it's just sitting there on, on my computer. And so that's probably in terms of like financial monetary value of the stuff that actually people, that, that people out there would want and could use for like directly useful and profitable things. Um, all of the R code, um, the, programming language are this it's a statistical data language really um that's probably most immediately valuable potentially to people so um 
and it's also valuable to me because I'd like to write up the insights that I've that I've found in these different exploratory analyses that I've done over the years. So that's one kind of long form pro- project that I'm I've decided I think I'm going to be kind of prioritizing over the next few months because it's a it's actually that's that stuff is actually really useful and profitable to people. Um, I think that there are a lot of people out there like writers and bloggers who are just good enough with computer code and stuff like that, that they can use this code really easily. And it's all open source, all free stuff, both the software and the data that I that I almost always use. So like there are a lot of people who could use this code. And it, I mean, it's taken me hours and hours over years to write it all. But now that it's there, anyone can just fire it up on their computer. And, you know, I could give you one script and then you open it up on your computer and it will download the some random political science data set, let's say like the general social survey or something. It'll download it for you. It will clean all of the variables. Like it'll clean like all the variables that I cleaned in my analyses and then make a bunch of graphs and run some models and extract results. Like all of that is embedded in the code. So um, like there are a lot of people who could just, who don't actually know how to do that and they don't even need to learn how to do that. But if they're just good enough to use computers, I can basically make all of that code and value available to people basically. And so I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but that's just one example of one of the, one of the things I've accumulated over the, my years as an academic that I haven't had the time to do anything with, but is valuable. And I thought I would like to, um, you know, make good on. So that, because it's, yeah, as I said, it's like actually profitable to people. It's directly like useful. People want and need that stuff. Um, saves people a lot of time and empowers people to do cool stuff they wouldn't otherwise be able to do or wouldn't have the time to do. Um, and also because it has like a, a kind of synergy with like my other goals and interests, which is like, you know, actually doing analysis and writing uh, interesting, valuable insights and stuff like that. So I kind of kill two, ber- two birds with one stone. I turn all of that stuff into some kind of like online uh, product. I probably just make like an, an ebook with it or something. I don't know what exactly or some kind of course maybe, or just put it up there and let people use it. Uh, I don't know. I'll figure that out later. But as I do that, I'll also be able to, you know, get blog posts out of that and actually write stuff up and 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 remember like all the stuff I've looked into over the year, try to make sense out of it all. So that's a long answer to your question of what I'm doing next. What do we have? Uh, any other questions, comments, thoughts? The uh, the only other things I wrote in my notes that I would want to talk about tonight, and we're already damn time flies. I'm I'm kind of on a roll tonight. Only twenty minutes left. Uh, the only other things I had on my notes were, uh, yeah, the Cambridge lecture I wanted to talk about, but I guess I already did. I don't know if I have any more thoughts on that other than just, I thought it was funny and, um, quite, uh, yeah, quite revealing. I think I, I, I who knows, but, um, you know, you don't want to, you don't, you don't want to overfit your model and read every bit of noise as, uh, significant, but yeah, I, I, I thought that was like quite, quite hilarious and revealing of something. Um, what else? What else? Um, oh yeah. The only other point I had in my bullet points was, uh, so I'm sending out all these books to people. Uh, you remember a couple of weeks ago, I did this thing where I said, anyone want one of my books? If you just pay for me, if you just pay for the shipping, I'll send it to you. Well, I'm executing those orders now and shipping them out to people. So I'm going through like old books and, uh, I came across one book, which is kind of strange. And I thought, um, well, I just had some kind of feels about it. And, uh, I think you guys might find it interesting. Uh, this book by Crime Think. I don't know how many of you know of Crime Think, but Crime Think is basically a certain tendency, or it's a particular group in, in kind of like the radical left, more anarchist kind of tendencies. It's, it's a specific group, and uh, it's mostly anonymous. They kind of 
write things collectively. And there are some individuals, but they mostly use like pseudonyms, like Nietzsche Guevara, <laughs> like silly kind of uh, fake names or whatever. And, uh, you know, this book in particular has, it's called Days of War, Nights of Love, crime thing for beginners. It's, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, critical things you could say of it. It definitely feels in places uh, quite immature, one might say. Uh, it has a kind of angsty teenage vibe to it here and there. It uh, it has a lot of like cartoons like this. It's very much like a zine, you know, so it's very, it's actually quite a well-produced book, all things considered. But uh, it has a kind of, yeah, zine type of feel to it. And uh, yeah. So a lot of people would look at this sort of stuff, this crime thing stuff, and a lot of people think that it's quite immature and silly, just kind of like uh, insurrectionary anarchist dreaming, really, and provocative rhetoric. So those are the kinds of the critiques. And I, I, I have some sympathy for those critiques. Like, this is not exactly my, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not, a, obviously, I'm not a diehard crime thinker. Um, but I thought this book was interesting as I was going through it, because this actually is a pretty significant like component or vector of my own politics and, and kind of intellectual perspective, to be honest. And the way I would describe, and so I was actually flipping through it and I was like, you know, a lot of this is actually kind of good. Like the, the basic insights. So I'll give you, I wanted to basically just take this as a moment to reflect on one part of my kind of upbringing, my political education, if you will. And, uh, my own kind of intellectual profile, even today, because this does kind of capture part of it. So I'll just, I want to give you a quick review or summary and give a little, give a few comments or whatever on it. And so for those of you who've never heard about this, uh, maybe I'll take a, I'll, I see some chat about this. Hang on one sec. I'll, then I'll proceed. Um, Michael James or no, Jim Johnson says, I thought ER were nonviolent. Oh, that's about something else. Okay. never mind. Um, Michael James says that he might get dismissed because of his involvement with Extinction Rebellion. Interesting. I don't know anything about that, Michael. Um, to be honest, I'm, I've am i heard of Extinction Rebellion. I get that um, they're like an anti-climate change activist group, right? I think something like that. But I don't know anything about them, so I shouldn't speak out of school. Um, I, I would be curious to know more about your case, though. Keep me updated. Um, and... Uh, Right. So Michael's question is, can I sue the university for dismissal? I could definitely. Uh, it's been suggested to me before by a few people that I should lawyer up and get ready to sue for dismissal. And I've thought a lot about that. And the thing is, just for me personally, it's just not my style. I mean, I could. And who knows? Maybe if I maybe, you know, if I want to, I could at some point. But the truth is, it's just not my style. Like I don't it would be awkward to sue for a job that I, you know, don't really want that much. Like that would just be like, why go through a big fight uh, and spend a, a lot of money to, to try to protest and keep a job that at this point, frankly, it, it's, it's hard to have much respect for. That's not to say I don't have any respect for it. There are people doing good work and I do respect lots of the work, both teaching and research that, some of it that is being done in academia, no doubt. So I don't have a complete utter like utter disrespect for everything going on there, not at all. But for me, and given what I'm trying to do, and the larger institution as a whole, the you know the the sector of higher education and and the institutions of academia, you know this whole process of being suspended and just the absurdity of it all, the silliness of it all. I mean, it's really just increased to 
um, irredeemable and irreversible levels, my just kind of like utter contempt for the the basic institutions and also the the kind of the cultural dynamics that have kind of gripped the university system right now and the particular cultural and political environment. It's just so, I mean, I wouldn't wish it on my enemies. Like it's, it's to be honest, like the more I think about it and the more I'm kind of like fully embarked on all these alternative projects, the more I'm like, this is the right decision. And almost, I'm almost so confident now, like things are really sorting themselves out so much that I'm like, the truth is my honest emotion is I actually feel kind of pity for, a lo- for some people in academia. Um, not, I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. There are, as I said, like, you know, I don't understand other people's lives and their choices. And um, I certainly, this doesn't apply to everyone. And certainly maybe not even a majority, but there are some people who, you know, how should I put this? Academia is, is just not the kind of job that you walk away from. And I think there are a lot of people who get into academia, they win the lottery, they work really hard and they get that tenure track job and then they get tenure and then they find, I mean, basically just like me, that it's not what they thought it would be. They don't really like it. It's increasingly, the culture is increasingly insane. The institutions are increasingly bureaucratic and dysfunctional and kind of Soviet level delusional, but no one walks away from a tenure academic gig. Just no, almost no one does it. It's so hard to walk away from. And, but they kind of want to, or they kind of wish they could. And, um, but, but it's just impossible to, and I'm the same. Like I probably, I probably, I don't, who knows if I ever would have walked away from this, even though now that I'm pushed out now, I'm like, I, I could not imagine it being otherwise. Like I, I, it seems to me now, like very, very much, absolutely the best thing for me. Like I'm very happy to be out. I'm extremely happy to be out basically. Um, my quality of life and my sense of well being and my, my energy, my, my ability to work, the hours I'm able to put in and also feel good when I'm done with it. Like basically every single marker of like a healthy, productive life has increased uh, tremendously. And so I'm, I'm grateful that this happened. And I don't think I would have, I don't, I don't think I would go back if they, if they invited me back. Um, But like I would, if I, if this didn't happen, who knows? I I probably, I, I could very well have been an academic for the rest of my life even though this is better for me now uh, just because it's fucking hard to walk away from things when, especially when all of society tells you that it's really, really good and it's coveted and you'd be, you know, so many other people are, are working really hard to, to get it. So many other people want what you have and there's not that many positions available and you're lucky enough to get one. Like, even if you're miserable, it's hard, it's hard to walk away from that. And so, yeah, I forget why I started going down that route, but that is, um, that's one of my, that's one of my impressions. And to be honest, it's just become more clear as I've, um, you know, gotten, gotten adjusted to this exit route. So yeah. What else? Um, yeah. So Michael James, shoot me an email or shoot me a DM. I'd like to know more about your situation. I I haven't heard anything about it. Uh, right. Where was I? Right. Crime think. I want to just tell you a little bit about this book because a lot of people I think would not think that this is on in my library. And uh, I think a lot of people look down on this kind of tradition or lineage or tendency. And when I picked it up today, I was flipping through it. It's like, you know, there's actually some good, there's some good lines in here. And uh, so I think it's actually somewhat underrated. I think the crime thing. So, so let me, so let me give you the quick summary. Uh, a lot of you probably have never heard of this. So this is basically crime think is, is one particular kind of, 
I think they called themselves at one point a workers collective. It's basically a kind of radical left, uh, very anarchist. I think you'd kind of call it insurrectionary anarchist. That's what I would call it anyway. Definitely with like communist um, undertones, strong egalitarianism, of course. Um, but really the, the defining characteristics of the insurrectionary anarchists and specifically kind of crime think variant of insurrectionary anarchism is it's a very kind of romantic, um, how should I put this? It's, it's very romantic. It's very vitalistic. It's very, you know, the kind of like bourgeois ideology of like a live in the moment, you know, that idea, it's kind of like the militant anarchist version of that, or it's a militant anarchist version of that among other things. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, listen to your body. Uh, you know that the current organization of society, you just know it, you feel it. Everyone knows that it's the way society is organized today is fundamentally unjust, inhumane, terrible, and everyone hates their jobs and everyone knows it. And there are all these lies that society's built on and everyone knows it. So just fuck it, man. You know, if you want to steal from a grocery store, you're not stealing from a grocery store. You're liberating those products from the grocery store. And you're also finding, you know, the inner truth of, of, you know, your uncaged animal being, and this is true and good. And, uh, you know, morality is just a bourgeois sham that's been evolved to keep the masses down. And what else? Um, I mean, you could flip through it and uh, easily get a sense of the, you know, it's very, it's very much a kind of, DIY culture, kind of zine culture, like fuck copyright. All information should be free. Copy things as you please. Repurpose things, remix things. It's a very kind of, you know, you get you get um, uh, a hint of Guy Debord and the Situationists. You get, uh, what else do you get a hint of? You get um, a lot about how, you know, contemporary institutions make you passive and compliant and what else people watch too much TV and they're on screens too much, you know, another kind of common talking point in today's culture, but you know, crime think was to be fair, they were kind of saying this um, before it was cool. Maybe is one way to put it. And uh, yeah. So uh, an ethic of anonymity, you know, no one uses their real names. You get the idea. And uh, yeah, very kind of like gender, uh, gender woke, let's say gender is like a false construct that's imposed on people. Uh, and people should, you know, people should, you know, express themselves however they want against the imposed dominating structures. You get the idea. So that's a kind of just, just brief cartoonish rehearsal of some of the, some of the big themes. I'm just trying to convey the basic aesthetic or whatever. And, uh, yeah, you know what, like of all the things I just said, I don't, agree with all of them. Uh, but the, the underwriting or how should I, how should I, no, not underwriting the, uh, the overriding or undergirding, whichever you prefer spirit of this kind of insurrectionary anarchist tradition. I like it a lot and it's really important and it is good and true. I think that part of it is good and true. Um, and this is one of the, this is one of the vectors through which I got my kind of just utter disrespect and contempt for like all currently existing institutions, basically. I mean, it is like, this is what the insurrectionary anarchist tradition gets right. Um, You know, most of currently, like most currently existing capitalist and bureaucratic institutions, they, they have in fact evolved to uh, keep you compliant and to suck the life out of you for their own profit and their own, you know, to, to reproduce 
the institutions. The institutions reproduce themselves through the exploitation of, of your vital capacities. I think that's I think that's fundamentally true. I think that's a that's a true insight. And it does go deep and it and it does, it does, we experience that as extreme suffering. And it's uh yeah, so I like anything that says that and kind of forcefully reminds you of that. And also another thing that they're good on is like putting putting vital like they're vitalists. They they put, you know, the they put your experiences and your your immediate affect and energies as a, a kind of primary and initial data point for building out theories of the world and, and, and especially making decisions about what you should or should not do. Um, I think that's also uh, a, a really good move. The, where I tend to part ways with this is they, it's often in a very kind of post secular kind of atheistic God is dead kind of way. Um, so it's very much like, you know, more, all of morality is a bullshit. There are no rules. There's only like, listen to your heart and the romance of, you know, the small band of revolutionaries, you know, shoplifting and uh, living in communes and stuff like that. And man, I have a lot of, I got a lot of love for that and I've done it myself and I still kind of want to do it. I mean, I'm still talking with my friends about like, yo, let's buy a house somewhere beautiful and let's like move into it. And, uh, you know, I'm still like scheming with, I'm still scheming around all these different ideas. I still believe in, um, yeah. How can people, how can groups of people get together and, and, and engineer better ways of living and breaking the rules, but doing it in a way that works and that creates, um, preferable orders, you know, um, I think like you can't throw ethics altogether out of it. And I don't think, I don't know. I, I actually think that you find in this sort of tradition, you find some implicit recognition that in fact, like the community, the community of revolutionaries or the community of radical crime thinkers or whatever it might be, that there, that there are norms and ethics and, and constraints to keep that, um, to keep that cohesive. Um, but that's not very sexy. Like that part of the puzzle is not really sexy. I think they kind of, a lot of these people just assume that that will emerge and that uh, a small community living radically and, and uh, romantically in this kind of anti-capitalist communistic fashion will just kind of like self self organize or self uh, enforce norms and, and ethics and, and basically have its own like autonomous, but functioning moral system. And that generally tends not to happen. And that's a major problem. And there are reasons for that, I think. And, but that's not really sexy and you don't uh, write like very uh, gripping manifestos uh, with that stuff. And to me, that's where basically religion comes in uh, because I think that you can't, I believe in radicalism. I believe in, I believe capitalism is a fundamentally kind of unjust lying exploitative uh, set of institutions that, you know, really do suck the life out of us and make our lives terrible and make us terrible people. And at a certain point, you do have to just say, fuck this. I'm going to break whatever rules I need to, um, you know, to to like express and and perform the the person that I, you know, to, to perform fully and express fully the uh, vitalistic processes that, you know, damn well are being kind of constrained and and suppressed. So I believe in that tremendously, but um, it's not a contradiction to also say that there are uh, deep and longstanding truths and structures that it would behoove us to respect because they're true and because they are there, whether we like it or not. 
So that is where I think this kind of insurrectionary anarchist tradition goes wrong. They, they go too much out on this vector of there are no rules. We can do anything we want. That's not actually true. There is actually a structure to reality, I think. And, um, but the thing is, it is a relatively minimal structure. There are only a few basic facts, I think, of the, the, the correct conduct of life or ethics, in other words. And I think the, the world religions, um, in my own perspective, I, I see this through a Catholic lens, but that's in part, you know, not to be relativist about it, but that is in part, admittedly, because of how I was brought up. And um, I do think that the different world religions in their own ways become world religions because they encode um, in overlapping ways. They encode really simple, basic uh, truths that are essentially the the necessary structures for for how to conduct oneself in a way that works well with yourself and with and with others. And so, yeah, I think like that's very not sexy for like a revolutionary manifesto of anarchists or whatever, but it is true. And I think there are, there are ways still that have not been tried yet to have both. I think that you can have the kind of uh, extremely exciting inspirational aspect of revolutionary insurrectionary anarchist kind of crime think style ideas and practices. And also at the very same time, uh, express and 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 perform and and protect uh the reality of 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 hardcore and real kind of ethical constraints that do pre-exist us and yeah i think that they're there that's basically what religion is uh it's, it's a kind of structure of authority that pre-exists us and in some sense made us um and i i, do, I just don't think it's contradictory to say yeah most of this like human bullshit is lies and oppressive nonsense and structures that don't need to be there that make themselves seem like they're, you know, reality itself. I'm, that is true. That is true. But that's, but religion is something higher and, and larger and more longstanding than that. And I think you're, you really fuck yourself over if you throw out the baby of religion with the bathwater of all the fake bullshit rules of, you know, contingent uh, human history. That's my take personally. Um, yeah, so I just thought it'd be funny to talk about this because when I was flipping through it, I was kind of like, huh, you know, I see, I see parts of myself in this, no doubt. Uh, so big shout out to the crime thing collective. I don't agree with it all, but, um, I think you're underrated and, uh, you know, you know, this sort of tradition and this line of thinking, you know, uh, is close to my heart and I'm glad you exist. So, yeah. What else we got in the chat? Uh, do you believe that on the third day Christ rose again in accordance with the scriptures? That is a really fucking good question. And I told you that I'm, I'm open to questions here and I'm not going to dodge them. Uh, so I'll, I, this is one of the questions that I struggle with the most right now about just thinking through my politics and my, and my kind of intellectual perspective on, on things. It's, it's the, the parts of the Christian catechism that are kind of explicitly, they explicitly state that something happened in history that by all indications to a rational scientific person, you just, you can't believe. So that's a really good example. And that's a good, that's a good question. And I don't, I'll give you the preface that I don't know my answer to this exactly, but I have been thinking about it a lot and I'll, I'll give you what I got. It's probably not going to satisfy people, but it might get us uh, some progress slightly on this question. So to repeat, do I believe that for instance, the third day, uh, on the third day, Christ rose again in accordance with the scriptures. So the resurrection, in other words, do I believe that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead? So I'm a, a social scientist. I'm a, 
I mean, I'm, I'm well trained in scientific method and I believe that uh, basically scientific method and, and rationality is essentially the, the only kind of tool we have for making correct decisions about uh, what is possible in the empirical world. So I'm through and through a, you know, rationalist and, and, and scientifically modern person which is why I struggle with this question. Obviously, the easy answer is to say, obviously, that's impossible. Obviously, no person could ever be resurrected um, from the dead. We've never seen it. There's there's no proof that it's ever happened, ever. Um, you know, uh, there's testimonies, right? There's hearsay. There's all these different things. Um, but if you're, a rational, if you're a rational scientific person, you kind of just have to say, when someone tells you, <laughs> once upon a time, someone rose from the dead, you have to kind of say, I do not believe that uh, based on the data that I have about how the world works and the world that we live in. So that's the obvious answer that rational, educated, secular atheist people tend to put. And I'm not sure that I, I'm not so, okay, so that's, let's just do this in halves. That's one half of me. Uh, the other half is this. I am not actually convinced that the Christian person has to say that they believe that that event happened. I have a, I have a slightly different take on it, basically. In other words, I think this idea that a specific event happened where Jesus Christ, the person, the historical person died. And then this like specific empirical event of him coming back from the dead or being resurrected, that this, that this happened in the empirical world in empirical history in the way that we think about empirical history. I actually don't think you need to affirm that in that way. Um, and I, I'll, I'll explain for a couple reasons. So one is that the ver- you have to understand that all of these ideas we have today about the empirical reality of an event and the way that we can separate out empirical real world events that happen in the concrete world from the way that we can separate that from, from spiritual reality, from our desires, from our longings, from our beliefs and convictions and interests in the social community and love for the people around us and all of these things. We now in 2019 are extremely good at separating these things out. We've been doing it for generations upon generations. We have the mental models for it. Um, we probably are smarter just that, as biological creatures. Uh, so in many, many ways um, we have this capacity to kind of, put empirical statements in a particular way in a particular domain and to understand them in a certain way and judge them in particular with certain criteria, the criteria of scientific rationality or whatever, or just empirical reality. But back then they didn't have that. Right. So what it means to write in a book that Jesus rose from the dead, like when, you know, the apostles or whatever, when the people put into the Bible, um, you know, when this becomes a part of early Christian, the early Christian story, you know, it's written in the book on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. That it just simply is not an empirical statement in the sense that we think of empirical statements. I mean, that's just undeniable. Um, and, and to insist that that's what they meant and that's what they were doing. Th- that's just plainly naive and, and stupid, I think, because they didn't have the the, the conceptual tools and the, the mental routines that we have. So that's 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 really, really important, I think, because what we do today is we say, oh, if you're a Christian, then you have to say that you think this thing happened. You you think an actual resurrection happened? And then, of course, you look like an idiot. Of course, that sounds idiotic. 
because uh, we're, we're scientific and modern people and we know what's possible and, and we know how to make decisions about what's likely and unlikely based on data and, and our past observations. And so, yeah, I think in other words, what I'm getting at is that our scientific rationality and the way that we've just, our society is normalized as the primary way of thinking, this kind of like uh, scientifically rational model, it's good and, and we should use it. And I, I've been trained to use it. And I, and I, I, be, I do believe that that is the only way we can diagnose and make inferences about what has happened in empirical reality. Um, and so in, you can say on the one hand, um, I do not believe, like I would say, for instance, I would answer this question by saying, I do not believe that it is possible for a human to die and be resurrected. I have no data for believing that that has ever happened. I have no reason to believe um, it could be possible now or any time in the past. Um, therefore, I do. So so that's that. That's That would be one part of my answer. I would say that without qualification. Um, and then I think you can also say that um, the, the, the meaning of that statement as it was written in the Bible at the time it was written in the Bible makes a lot of sense and is good. You can say that. And you can also say everything I said about my scientific diagnosis about the possibility of, of historical resurrections. Um, I mean, that's not that profound. And I don't know exactly if what I just said all ties up with a nice bow on top of it, but that's kind of, that's basically where I, that's where I'm moving with, with this. And so like, in other words, I think you can say, yes, I believe in the resurrection in the way that it was intended when it was written. Like it, I, I believe in the meaning that it has. I believe, I believe what it's saying. I believe what it means. I do believe in the resurrection just to believe in the resurrection, to believe in this kind of like, anciently scripted uh, testament to believe in the truth of that is something very different, just categorically, absolutely different than saying, I believe some discrete concrete phenomena occurred in empirical reality because diagnosing and separating off and saying uh, like making a, a, a kind of inference about like making an inference about a specific concrete event in empirical reality is something that we only learned how to do after they wrote that shit down. <laughs> so um, it may, I think it really does make sense and, and it's not contradictory and, and it's logical to say, to say what I, what I just said. So that's where I come down on it. So I would say um, I don't believe anyone can be resurrected from the dead empirically as an empirical reality. I don't think that's possible. I, I don't think it's ever happened. And that um, I think as a Christian, I do, I do believe I do believe in the the gospel about the resurrection of Christ because I understand I understand what they meant by it and I do believe in what they meant by it at the time that they wrote it. I believe that that's true. Something like that. All right, what else do we got? Oh, we're over time actually. So, the whole point of me setting a time limit was that I would forcibly not allow myself to talk longer than I can handle. So, once I get rolling, like kind of, I'm kind of in it. I could easily take more questions now and I could talk, I could easily just talk for another hour, but I know myself and I know that I'm going to get progressively kind of foggier uh, over the course of a second hour. So um, I'm going to, I'm going to try to hold this time limit strictly. Um, real quick. I can't resist. Michael James asks, so what did they mean by it? Uh, presumably he's talking about the, the, 
the idea or, or the statement that on the third day, Jesus w- was resurrected. I think personally, um, I, well, first of all, I would say a lot, all the scripture, it's really, really densely concentrated, right? So it's this like really, really efficient coding of multiple things. I think that's just very, I think we know that, um, or at least we have really good reason to believe that everything is so, you know, it's basically as many of you know, it's like the first hyperlinked document. If you look at the structure and people have built this up, right? If you look at like Bible hub, um, you know, it's like this dense, it's this really, really dense web of references back and forth in this uh, kind of hyperlinked way. And, you know, it's supposed to encode all of this stuff about life and how you should, how you should think and behave and the history of the world, you know, it's trying to encode like so much, right. And it's relatively short for what it's trying to encode. So clearly in an evolutionary process where the stuff is like iterated over time, um, it's going to get increasingly kind of dense and concentrated. So that's one thing. I think like everything you find in the Bible is, is doing a few different things at once. And I don't think that's a cop out. I think that's, that's like just the truth of what this historical evolved document is and what, what it's doing. And I think that that's well, you know, you make that argument quite well, I think. Um, but a little bit more to the point, one of the things that I think is that that means the resurrection just personally, and this is just off the cuff, but one of the things I think is coolest about that, or I'm most attracted to is I think they're definitely trying to say something about the, uh, the, the weirdly almost, uh, how should I put it? Uh, well, it's almost miraculous. The, the, the miraculous property of truth telling as unstoppable I really do think that's what, that's what they're getting at. I think that, uh, so I have this longer story to tell. I'll just, I'll give you a, a preview now, but I have this kind of like longer narrative. I've, I've been, I've been kind of developing, um, where I think Jesus was, di- was influenced by Diogenes of Sinope and the ancient cynics. Uh, and there's evidence that, um, there were ancient cynics kind of in the area around Jesus. And it's quite likely that, uh, Jesus actually had some concrete exposure to some ancient cynics in the lineage of, of someone like Diogenes. And um, if you go back to that time, you know, Diogenes is this like radically militant kind of truth speaker who basically organizes his entire life around talking shit as aggressively as possible on all of the kind of bourgeois normie people. And it makes a whole lifestyle, a whole philosophy out of this totally over the top, aggressive kind of humorous public uh, provocateur. But of course, that's in a kind of ancient Greek religious context. You know, he has visits to the to the oracles and stuff like that. And uh, right. So but it was very powerful. It, it was extremely powerful. Like it, it, he really did change the way people think. And, you know, a lot of the Roman emperors, for instance, the Roman nobles uh, admired him. And basically Stoicism, uh, which was one of the you know favorite philosophies of the of the, the Roman elites, was was hugely influenced by uh, ancient cynicism. It's kind of like a watered down version of ancient cynicism for politicians sort of. Um, and so anyway, very, very powerful, demonstrably powerful, right? Like even Alexander, you know, publicly said that he, that, that it was like the second most powerful thing to him in some sense, I'm paraphrasing. But, uh, anyway, I think that basically one way to read Christianity is that this Jesus guy, <laughs> um, and his cronies, they're kind of learning from this. They're kind of, they're understanding which way the wind is blowing. And they've heard stories about Diogenes and they've heard stories about the, you know, they see the ancient cynics and they get, they get the idea, they get the logic and they're like, huh, yeah, you know, there's something to that. And I think that one of, uh, one of the discoveries kind of encoded in Christianity is specifically that there's something very weird and peculiar about the truth, something mystical, really something truly, 
you know, they're, they're truly miraculous about the, the truth, which is like, no one can stop it. You just can't. It's there. And there's, there's no amount of social, you know, uh, conformity or political pressure or force. There is no amount of anything that is going to stop the truth from becoming true and and from ha- and from producing its effects on the world more more importantly i think that um and i think that the resurrection kind of encodes this hey everybody thanks for listening if you thought that was cool then don't forget to subscribe and it would be even cooler if you left a review i'd appreciate that and yeah just to learn more about what i'm up to you can check out theotherlifenow.com that's all and i will see you around the internet